Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, everyone. We are sitting down to record this thing even later than usual after a cooking adventure that went awry a little earlier. Everyone here is fine that we smell like burnt chicken. But we also have a really fun interview for you this week with future ventures that we want to get to. So we are just going to jump right into a couple of the week's biggest stories. Last Friday, Twitter permanently suspended Donald Trump's Twitter account, quote, due to the risk of further incitement of violence. His tweets were highly likely to encourage and inspire people to replicate the criminal acts that took place at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021, Twitter said. This past Wednesday, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey attempted to explain his company's decision to ban Trump. I feel a ban is a failure of ours, ultimately, to promote healthy conversation, he tweeted, and a time for us to reflect on our operations and the environment around us. The solution, Dorsey mused, may just be a Twitter project called Blue Sky, which is aiming to build an open, decentralized standard for social media that will include Twitter as well as other applications. In a fascinating article in today's TechCrunch, author Lucas Matney explores the implications of Blue Sky. While a decentralized structure could mean Twitter would have less responsibility to moderate speech on its platform, it could also give extremists easy access to a sophisticated peer-to-peer communications platform that is difficult to unplug. Twitter apparently eyed acquiring a startup called Planetary as a quick way to flesh out its Blue Sky vision, but it ultimately passed due to competitive concerns and what appears to be a substantial amount of bickering about Blue Sky's ultimate goals. As a result, Blue Sky is still very much of a work in progress. Nevertheless, Twitter's interest in developing a technology that would effectively allow it to pass the buck on moderating users' content is concerning. If four years of Donald Trump has taught us anything, it is that lies and propaganda, accelerated to the speed of light, can do incalculable harm. It's been another big week for the crypto world, and little wonder. One month ago, Bitcoin was trading at $21,000. Fast forward, and it's bouncing around today around $36,000, with a lot of its most bullish advocates working to drive it even higher. There's seemingly not a day that one of the Winklevoss twins, who oversee their own seven-year-old cryptocurrency exchange called Gemini Trust, aren't on Twitter singing its praises. It's hard for some to see the case for Bitcoin except as a, quote, digital gold, meaning people are just hoarding it rather than using it as a traditional currency, which I think was originally the point. It all leads to the question of why it's rising so fast. One reason is demand from institutional buyers, many of which see Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation. People in the know probably also see and are capitalizing on the state of flux in Washington, where the outgoing administration was very focused on deregulation. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, for example, has been led for the last eight months by the former chief legal officer of Coinbase, Brian Brooks, who made a lot of announcements during his short tenure, including that banks can provide services to issuers of stablecoins, that they can partner with crypto custodians, that they can conduct payments using stablecoins. I reached out to the FDIC and the Treasury Department last week to find out if the agencies have been in agreement with some of what Brooks has been saying, in essence, asking if he has been setting U.S. monetary policy. And the answer was, at least from the FDIC, no comment. 
Either way, there will be a changing of the guard soon. Brooks resigned just a couple of days ago, and there are already reports about who's expected to lead the SEC. It's all left many wondering what it means for Bitcoin, and also for Coinbase, where a lot of people are buying their Bitcoin. Just today, I reported that Coinbase has been completely overwhelmed by people who are buying and selling Bitcoin right now, a situation that is apparently very much top of mind for the company. And when I say overwhelmed, I don't mean on the security front, but regarding customer service, with many customers saying it is bad to non-existent. At a smaller company, that might be understandable. But Coinbase is now a nine-year-old outfit. It filed confidentially in December to go public, especially if it's under more scrutiny by the incoming administration and Bitcoin remains as volatile as it's been. It's going to have to get its act together and quickly. Up next, our interview with Mariana Sanko and Steve Jurvetson of Future Ventures. But first, a word from our sponsor. Farmland investment may seem like a foreign concept, even to those familiar with real estate investing. However, direct investments into farmland present a compelling opportunity. Farmland offers stable returns on investment, low correlation to traditional assets like bonds and equities, and a hedge to inflation. Historically, investors have had limited access to farmland as an investment, since farmland, like commercial real estate, is a relatively illiquid market with high cost to entry. With Farm Together, however, that high barrier to entry no longer exists. Diversify your portfolio and invest in farmland today with Farm Together. Please visit farmtogether.com for more information. our interview with Steve Jurvetson and Mariana Sanko of Future Ventures. Jurvetson is among the best-known VCs in Silicon Valley, having helped grow the famed firm DFJ and made early bets on a wide number of very successful companies. He's been especially close to entrepreneur Elon Musk, making early bets on Tesla and SpaceX and serving on their boards. And through Future Ventures, writing early checks to Musk's two newest companies, Boring Company and Neuralink. Sanko is just as interesting. With two material science degrees from Carnegie Mellon, she's already worked as a senior researcher at Carnegie Mellon, Cabot Corporation, and Lux Research, as well as been an investor with Airbus Ventures, Coastal Ventures, and DFJ, where she worked closely with Jurvetson and whose thinking made a deep impression on him. The two decided three years ago to launch their own small venture fund, Future Ventures, which prides itself on being the first check to virtually every startup it funds. We talked with the pair about their second and newest fund, how to get more COVID tests into the population, and whether or not Texas, where many rich Californians have been headed, is a paradise or a hellhole. Jervison also explained why he has never sold a share of any company he has funded. Here's that conversation. I'm so excited to be joined today by Mariana Sanko and Steve Jervison of Future Ventures, both of whom I haven't seen in a little over a year, although it feels much longer than that now. Guys, congratulations on your new fund. Well, thank you very much. We're super excited about being able to back the future and being back to the future. So thank you for that. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about it. So this is exactly the same size as your debut fund, $200 million. Did you invite in any new investors and also any institutions this time? Because I know the last time it was largely from tech CEOs, VCs, and that sort of thing. Good memory. And it's largely the same in every respect the second time around. We set a hard cap of $200 million. We were dramatically oversubscribed in an even shorter period of time. 
this time than last because most of our LPs just rolled over for a pro rata amount to do the same amount in the new fund as their last fund. Some spoke for quite a bit more. One or two went through their own COVID roller coaster ride over the last year and had to bow out. So we did add a few, maybe a handful of new LPs, many fewer than wanted to join. But the complexion of the fund is pretty much the same as you described it. I actually did a tally just before this call, and about 38% of our LPs are venture capitalists or other investors, folks like ourselves who've had a long, illustrious career, in many cases longer than ours. And they regard this as very diversifying from the VC that they're doing. The second largest bucket are tech executives, certain CEOs and former CEOs of large, enormous companies of relevance to our ecosystem. And you can imagine those two buckets alone which now is like 62% of the fund, that is an incredible source of deal flow, of partnership opportunities, of co-investment opportunities in later stage rounds. So we couldn't be happier with our LP base. We have added at least one institution. We had a couple from before, depending on how you look at it. One university endowment, another, which is, I don't know, this one up in Canada, this institutional group. And, and a new one, which is a hedge fund manager and consider themselves an institution. I remember the first fund had a 15-year timeline. And so is that, again, the case with this Absolutely. new fund? Yep. Actually, every term, condition, minutia, even the legal document, we took pride that we did a red line to show that almost nothing had changed. Just the one became a two. It's still 2.5% in management fees and 25% carry? That's correct. Yeah. Un unfettered. Yeah. And a 15 year life, by the way, like last time, we don't draw fees over 15 years, but we tell our OPs, look, this is a long game. These companies take longer than five to seven years to come to full maturity. They may go public in that time frame, but as you can see with Tesla and SpaceX and some of the greatest tech stories of our day, you really would regret having feel pressure to punch out early when they're really in the greatest phases of toward growth. You mentioned to me that you had raised a $100 million SpaceX a special purpose vehicle in a handful of days, which is amazing. I just wonder, who do you turn to for a $100 million SPV in that short amount of time? And also, is that the strategy going forward, conservative fund size, but SPVs when you need them? We're fortunate in having such a supportive LP base. And so the first thing that we did was we were able to contact our LPs and say, you have confidence in us and, and we have confidence in SpaceX, but please make your own decision here. And we were able, because of Steve's closer relationship with the company, to share some meaningful information there that allowed, I believe, Steve, that the majority of our SPV was taken up by our current LPs. And it was interesting is that that actually enabled some relationships. So LPs who weren't a part of Fund One got to know us through that process, albeit it was a very quick one, and have actually since joined us in Fund Two. I think that's a good point. It speaks to your first question on the nature of the LPs and their value. And to your second question, we are open to continuing doing this, but we don't have any sense of the frequency at which it would come up because we want to save it really for remarkable opportunities, companies that are at a massive growth inflection phase. And that doesn't happen every day. We knock on wood and hope we'll have such an opportunity every year or two, but maybe we won't because it could very well take a good five years for the next company like SpaceX to emerge out of the portfolio and, and to be at that scale. What was your pacing in the first fund and what was your average bite size? We did a total of 20. We have a graph that shows there was an initial bolus of activity given the backlog of deal flow prior to first opening our door, right? The prior five months, we hadn't been doing any investments. So we had all kinds of opportunities and SpaceX as a special situation presented itself right at that moment. So Q1 kickoff was very active. The first year was quite active. COVID hit. We dialed back, but by no means down to zero. We were more cautious, taking a time to assess the financing risk that is all around us and trying to assess the timeframes over which 
financial markets may or may not be impacted for fall-on rounds of funding for these companies so that we did a comparable number of companies probably in the second year as the first, but at smaller average check size. Overall, the average check size was 3.8 million, excluding SpaceX. So the reason I say that is SpaceX, we communicated in our fundraising that a special situation, maybe two, would occur where we do a later stage, large check, single investment in a company we had immense conviction in. And we didn't anticipate that to happen right away, but SpaceX, the opportunity to reopen the prior year's round and join an extension of that close made it very tempting to do that on behalf of the fund. Actually, our very first investment from Fund One was SpaceX. Perhaps, Connie, I'll just add to your earlier question of strategy in terms of SPVs and fund size. Steve answered the SPV question. On fund size, our size is really predicated on team size. And that's to say that the investment team these days is Steve and myself. And we believe that this is a size fund that we can continue to thoughtfully, methodically, and in a timely manner execute on. And so the time of execution on Fund One was, it took us two years to get to those 21st first check investments into companies. And so that's the portfolio for fund one. And we expect a similar timing and team structure for fund two. Have you made any investments from the second fund? I, I saw today in Bloomberg that you re-upped in Sensei yeah, right. Biotherapeutics. Just wondering why that company is so interesting to you. And also if you've been investing from the second fund already. I'll take a quick one, then hand it to Mariana to describe Sensei. So we have not invested anything from Fund 2 yet. We're going to closing this week, that fund, and we're going to wait till it closes before making new investments. So Sensei was a follow-on investment in a Fund 1 portfolio company. And maybe, Mariana, do you want to jump in and share our love for the phage? <laughs> That's right. So one, I would just steer anyone of interest to the Sensei Therapeutics website. But bacteriophage are amazing little workhorse of the biological world that have been intellectually fascinating to Steve and myself for a number of years. And we were just delighted when we came upon the technology within Sensei and its particular approach to being a potentially incredibly strong and effective solution to a number of cancers that are currently largely untreatable. And so the company is in clinical trials right now. And our follow-on investment was largely based on the very positive initial trial results that we've seen come out and that we believe will continue progressing. Just to give people a better sense of how you think about things, how did you find this team? Were there other similar companies that you passed on before deciding on this company? That's a good question. Immuno oncology is a very crowded landscape, like liquid biopsies, like a variety of other areas that have been a bright light to many talented investors and have proven tough. The promise is great and the promise is still forthcoming. And so, yes, this is a peculiar path. We have a portfolio company called Cambrian. Cambrian itself is unusual. It is a investment distributed research and development company, a fancy way of saying it itself holds a portfolio of roughly 10 different portfolio companies as divisions, as subs of a parent, all focused on human longevity of all things. So they have a, a systemic focus across the portfolio on ways of dealing with the hallmarks of aging, looking for things that are both human health protective in the near term, but longevity and human health span expanding in the long run. So this is a company we got to know over a fair bit of time as a subco of Cambrian. So that's how we got to know management. We've heard pitches from them. We've heard summaries from, in a sense, their largest shareholder and have a high degree of trust and privileged access to that information flow and of all the companies, how they're performing relative to each other and how this one's doing relative to its peers. And the thing that strikes me, at least, as unique about it is the phage approach as a manufacturing platform is wonderfully elegant in a few ways. One is it's 
a very low-cost manufacturing method. I might contrast this to some nonprofit work at the University of Washington to create a nano cage that is decorated with antigens and acts as a self-adjuvating vaccine for any number of things. You could argue it is a synthetic biology, completely synthetic lab-grown alternative to what we're talking about, but has some inherent problems. It's not actually a virus. It's a synthetic particle. They try to make it act like a virus. But most importantly, you have to deal with some fairly complex synthetic chemistry to build it. In contrast, phage in the natural world kill half of all bacteria on earth, the largest biomass of death every single day on earth. And they kill half of all, all of those bacteria every 48 hours. They are incredibly efficient at inserting a DNA code into a bacteria, such that the bacteria makes more and more copies of the phage. So if the phage is in fact something you want, you can use that replication cycle to make and amplify a huge bolus of what you want. So that was phase one of like, wow, that's pretty clever. Phase two is the fact that it is a virus. Now, a virus that does not affect human cells. It has no effect whatsoever on, on human cells. It only affects bacterial cells. Yet it retains enough of the archaic signature, if you will, the capsids protein signature looks like a virus because it is a virus. And so it is a, what's called a self-adjuvating virus. You don't need to make a separate adjuvant, which is its own special chemistry and set of IP rights and trial and error experimentation. It does it itself. It triggers the immune system quite effectively to say, hey, I'm a virus. I'm not hiding that fact. So when it's decorated with, whether it's coronavirus or an antigen specific to human solid head and neck tumors, which they're focused on, it's much more efficacious than other methods in the deployment of a vaccine and in the manufacturing method. So if all goes well, the idea would be in the long run, you may even have prophylactic vaccines to cancer, which would be the holy grail of this. In the near term, it's therapeutic, and they're in the middle of their clinical trials, demonstrating efficacy as we speak. In addition to synthetic biology, you've said that some of your focus areas are commercial space exploration, deep learning, quantum computing, robotics, AI, blockchain, clean meat. What areas are you investing in the most these days, and how has that changed? How do you expect that to change from fund one to fund two? The way that we think about our investment thesis is honestly about this diaspora of ever-expanding technology sectors that we find fascinating, and that specifically we look at the interstices between overlapping regions and sectors. So if you were to look at our Fund One portfolio, you might say that there isn't one connective theme throughout it, but the connective theme is that these are companies, unlike anything we've seen before, that we believe will make the world a better place, that are focused on spaces that we have either adjacent knowledge or interest or, or experience in the past. And so what we've seen is that our thesis naturally evolves just by these very simple questions we ask, which is, how does this technology serve the world? Is it unlike anything we've seen before? Is it uniquely positioned both by team, technology, and capacity of markets to actually make those fundamental changes? I would say that where you'll see us going with Fund 2 is continuing on this path and specifically focusing on sectors that we believe to be largely underserved by the rest of the investment community. I, for one, am gaining an increasing amount of interest in the regenerative agriculture space and in permaculture and in trying to understand that as we have a glowing, growing global population, we've seen some of the challenges, what happens when zoological viruses get in, introduced into human populations. And we can talk about some of the reasons that that's happened, but I think it would behoove all of us to look at our food industry and say, what are the ways in which we are currently feeding our global population that is unsustainable in the future, given the number of people that we have and are going to continue having on this planet. 
Are you backing any other cell-based meat companies? I, I know that years ago you guys had funded Memphis Meats. I'm seeing many more companies focused on seafood alternatives. Just curious if this is something that you're going to make a second bet in if you haven't already. Well, we're definitely continuing to look. We want to find something that will look sufficiently different from Memphis Meats or any of the predecessor companies. But if we step back and abstract it a bit to say, how do we manufacture food? We absolutely think there's a lot more still to be done. If you look out 50 years and think about the inevitable future, we won't slaughter animals for food. That's just absurd. And so much needs to change for that vision to come true. So it's all aspects of food up and down, of course, the chain of meats and fish and poultry and what have you. It's also potentially substitute healthy proteins, fungal alternatives to steaks, maybe insects. We've looked at it some depth, but are trying to decide where the best play is and what do we really believe the future portends for that protein budget. What we can't do is business as usual. China will destroy Africa the way the U.S. destroyed the Amazon with American-grade beef in the 80s and 90s, and the, the burgeoning consumption and demand for beef and meat in general needs to be addressed globally. So just like energy, construction, transportation, there's these big, huge problems that need sustainable solutions. And so we are very much still looking. I can't tell you we have a specific cellular ag solution as the next investment, because we don't, but we're open to an, an additional one if they can persuade us they're different than what's already out there in a meaningful way. And then also at other areas that are adjacencies, we gain a vantage point to have a slightly new perspective on something adjacent, perhaps the, the feedstocks for cellular agriculture, for example. All the bovine fetal serum has to go away, of course, as a feedstock. Can we get a purely plant-based food base, if you will, for all these cellular cultures to grow on? Is that itself a standalone business? Does that need to exist? Those are the kinds of second order questions we start to ask. I can't remember now. I talked to a VC at 50VC who had introduced me to a former Boeing pilot in Seattle who has a chicken nugget startup, but she's really trying to build a infrastructure that can be sold or licensed to other companies so that not every company is trying to reinvent the wheels. Is there anyone building the specific hardware and processes so that many more of these companies can benefit from that so that they're not all reinventing the wheel? We actually had the privilege of getting to know that company you mentioned in Seattle. We're not investors, uh, although deeply supportive of the trajectory they're taking. I think while you see a lot of these companies out there doing the bolts and hardware, whether it's bioreactors and the like, it comes down to the question of are these venture scalable businesses or are they bent metal plumbing businesses, which are absolutely necessary and can be exceptional businesses in their own right, but possibly don't have the type of venture scale returns that our capital is best suited for. Right. So it's not to say that we wouldn't be interested in those platform companies, but we have to look at them and assess each one individually. Does the business case make sense? And is there foundational technology underlying it that would allow any one company in that space to stand out and gain the lion's share of the, the market? I wanted to talk about space for a second, because I noticed that you didn't mention that as an area of interest for the second fund. Steve, I was listening to an interview you gave to Harry Stebbings this summer, and you'd mentioned the fact that SpaceX had raised $1.1 billion in 2016. And at that time, that was double all the VC amount invested in the space sector combined up, up to that point. And you'd mentioned as of the summer, 360 venture firms had invested in hundreds of small satellite companies. We just finished a space session at TechCrunch where there were a lot of companies that are cropping up, even garbage collection companies, insurance companies. Is that interesting to you? Is space tourism interesting to you? Is space too crowded at this point? 
I think actually, yes, yes, yes. So it is interesting <laughs> and it is too crowded. So interesting in that I'm going to be a space tourist one day for sure with a very low orbital insertion in the moon and the spacewalk over the lunar surface. That's my dream. And that's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and more safe and less insane to say such a thing as time passes. I'm in no hurry. So I could wait five, 10 years easily to do that. The Part, though, about from an investment perspective is the landscape breaks down into a variety of large buckets. One is launch. Another is what are you launching? What are the satellites up there? And those have different subsectors. But let's start with launch. Clearly, SpaceX is a juggernaut. We have our bet there. We're big believers in them. The question is, does it leave a niche? When SpaceX abandoned their own Falcon 1 rocket, people scratch their heads. Well, what about launching just small satellites into the precise orbits the customers want on a timely fashion? The problem is, and the reason we haven't and will never invest in that, which is a pretty strong statement to make, is that there are already over 150 companies doing the exact same thing. So our simple rule, only investing in things that are unlike anything we've seen before, keeps us out of trouble. We don't actually have to do a deep dive. We don't have to try to pick winners or do a deep analytical experience to probably conclude we shouldn't invest anyway. We can just do it from sheer crowdedness. I've never seen anything like it. I know that similar massive venture-backed overfunding events have occurred in ad matching networks and various things deep within the consumer internet space, but never seen anything quite like it in hard deck, if you will, or the sectors we invested. So this was an easy one for us to just pass politely on all of these companies. And we saw the most interesting ones in the early days, as you might expect, given our prior investments in Planet Labs, the leader in small sats, and SpaceX, the leader in, in launch. So then the question is, well, what about the new opportunities? And the problem for us often is one of market size and or market timing. So if you depend on someone else to do something to have your business, let's say a fuel depot in space or some other derivative business that depends on some other thriving space economy to be in place, we'd rather not invest in such a thing. We'd like to invest in businesses that can forge their own future, that can march forward with customers without waiting for someone else. So things like a company that's going to try to repurpose the space station to be a private space station. We wish them well, just not the risk we can take on in terms of predicting government sentiments and licensing and what have you. Tourism in general, let me just say briefly, orbital tourism is going to be an amazing and wonderful thing. Suborbital hops will be an incredibly underwhelming and disappointing experience, in my opinion. The bragging rights to say, I'm an astronaut, will soon wither to saying, hey, I flew first class on an airplane. And actually growing up bragging about that, we'll see them as uncouth as saying you, quote, flew suborbitally up and down. I hope the people that do do it find some joy in the brief weightless experience and views of New Mexico that they get. But it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a far cry from being in orbit, going 17,500 miles an hour and seeing the entire Earth pass under you every 90 minutes. So... You've already assembled a lot of interesting bets from your first fund, one of which I don't know if either of you had backed even before Future Ventures kicked off, but was Elon Musk's neuroscience startup Neuralink, which this summer detailed some of its latest innovations for implanting minuscule wireless brain-computer interfaces that include thousands of electrodes that he hopes will ultimately cure neurological conditions like Alzheimer's and dementia. When you talk about investing in longevity, are you talking about this company specifically? And can you just talk a little bit about this bet and where it goes from here? Sure. We, we also invested in Boring, by the way. In, in both Neuralink and Boring, which are Elon Musk companies, we did this out of future ventures only. There were no outside investors of any sort in either company prior to the rounds that we participated in. But let's get back to Neuralink. No, this wasn't the longevity company per se. That was a company called Cambrian that I was referring to. But Neuralink is unusual. I guess you could put it into a longevity bucket if you believe the really long-term view of being able to port consciousness across substrates. I'm personally not a big believer in that possibility, but I am a believer in the near-term immediate 
opportunities to help the paralysis patients and those with uh, incredible cognitive impairment that could be repaired mechanically through this method. In the demonstration that they gave a few months ago that we went to, it was kind of remarkable. They had a pig with the electrode array inserted, and they were showing that you could actually detect that it was about to move each of the four paws right before it did it. In other words, you got the brain readout, and then you saw the physical motion. They had sensors on the pig, and you could see that it was actually reading the pig's mind in, in anticipation of each step in, in a repeated fashion. So the idea here is a much higher density of electrodes that are like little slivers of flexible wire such that you can have a higher fidelity brain machine interface than has ever been attempted before. <laughs> it's astonishing. How much money has Neuralink raised? Has it done a follow-on round since you invested in it? They're very tight-lipped about these things. So we'll punt on both Boring and Neuralink. Any question about that, we'll just have to do a quick Google search to remind ourselves what's public, but I don't want to be the one to, to accidentally say something that's not public on that one. Um, I did also wonder if you have board seats on other, either company. You had mentioned, Steve, that you and Marianne have relaxed your view on taking a board seat on a company that you lead. And I think you guys lead pretty much all of your early stage bets, don't you? We strive to. We don't always achieve our goals, though. We didn't take board seats in those cases. Mm -hmm. And this was a big blind spot for me that Mariana helped open my eyes to based on some G2 and perspective she brought to bear, as well as one of our LPs, a very large later stage investor who basically shared his life experience over his entire investment career of avoiding board seats at all situations. And that he, in short, was just as effective, if not more so, because of his freedom to speak freely and not have to always wear a fiduciary hat as a board member. The perception I had is that if you don't take the board seat, you're being lazy, that that's like a sign of venture capitalists just dialing it in and, and not doing the hard work and not helping the portfolio companies. And how could you possibly have a good reputation if you don't take a board seat? And then when you get caught into a self-fulfilling trap in a way, in that if you mostly and almost always take board seats, it really sticks out when you don't. But what does that signal to a startup company? In contrast, I've always been of the belief that I serve at the request of the portfolio company. I would never want a startup company to have me on their board because they felt obligated to because of a financing agreement or to, quote, get the money. It should be a welcoming, open-armed, we, we want your help here. And that's what happens, right? So we go to all the board meetings. And it's not because we put in rights and privileges say, you must give us this. It's because they want us there. And that's the way it should be. I think a couple of things are important to note here. One, it's not that we have an allergic reaction to board seats. That's certainly not true. And both Steve and myself do actually have a number of board seats in Fund 1, and we'll take on a handful in Fund 2. I think our question about board seats all ties into also the size of the fund and the size of the team, which is we want to ensure that we're scalable partners for our ecosystem. And that means that we can't respectively sit on 16 boards each or something like that, which we would rapidly arrive at in over the course of two or three funds if we took board seats in the majority of the investments that we had. We've also found over time that if a board has come to a contentious decision down to a vote on something, then something's gone terribly wrong much earlier in the process. And so I think we've just generally found that we can be helpful at our best and highest use as stewards of the companies that we seek to support and to fund without having to take a board seat and also taking board seats where it's the right time to do so in the company and also being mindful if we should continue on those boards forever and ever, depending on what stage we join as investors. Not to belabor the point, I guess the devil's advocate would be, don't you have a fiduciary obligation to be in the information flow so that you can be aware of problems that are cropping up? And if you're not a board member, are you still privy to that information? 
in all cases, we have, for example, if we get down to technicalities, we take majority investor information rights or something along those lines. I can't actually think of a single situation where we're not fully in the information flow of the company, particularly if we have a meaningful ownership of the company. And I think that broadly speaks to that point. I don't know if I'm missing any additional points we should make, Steve. No, I think that's exactly right. We do have those rights. So we don't abdicate our fiduciary duties to monitor and maintain information flows from the company. But there's a lot more than the finances, if you will, that make for a business, right? As you fully appreciate, it's a lot of the other elements that are more important in the early phases, the team building efforts, the strategic pivots, the brainstorming about the go-to-market strategy. That's where they really want and should engage us and do. And I guess I would say any company that would want to exclude us from that information flow is almost certainly got something very, very wrong with it. Either outright fraud, which we luckily don't have, or a deep sense of insecurity that will likely bow the complete write off the investment one way or the other. I can't hold in my mind, ah, yes, this is an investment that will do well, and they're keeping this information from us. If you're investing at a very early stage and your average investment is $3.8 and you typically don't have other co-investors, how much runway do you expect that your $3.8 or so will provide the company, and what are the proof points that you're looking for? It's not to say that we don't have co-investors. In fact, I can really only think of one situation in Fund One where we were the lead, but also only sole investor in a round. In almost every situation, the moment that we've committed to invest, there tends to be a, a bolus of follow-on interest. And so we work with the companies to assess what is the right level of capital to take on relative to the milestones that they want to gain. So I wouldn't say that we were the only check coming in at a round. Um, that's a good point. The way to think about it is there's a number of cases where there's smaller co-investors that join us. Sometimes we're part of a group of two investors. So we're not always the sole investor. There have been at least three situations where a fast follow-on note appeared where someone wanted so badly to get in that they instead issued a convertible note from a 2x to a 4.7x markup and valuation all within a month of our check. Some of the ones where we've been a solo investor also the company's made some good progress. We generally take into account what is the financing risk of the company. So back to your question of runway. These are not all companies that are in prototype development mode with no source of revenue. Some of the bigger, crazy projects do fit that bill, but others like boring companies, a simple example, very different company, very different stage of its development, bringing in revenue contracts from Vegas and various other places as we speak. So it's a mixed bag. I guess what I'd say is, we do model the fallen needs of our companies, both in terms of reserves, of course, and it has not been scary yet for any of these companies. Check back with us in six months because there'll be some funding cycles we'll need to get through on two or three of these companies, but they're all looking very good. In one case, they have a term sheet. In another case, they're about to start the conversations. I'm thinking about the ones I'm closest to. And I guess we've been more pleasantly surprised, frankly, at the incredible interest in fallen rounds that have already happened. And in fact, two companies have bankers picked to go public. That's not anything we would have expected at this phase, just two years into the fund. You're both brainiacs, but it almost seems like there could be a danger in you floating an idea to a prospective investor. There was a time, Steve, a million years ago when you were talking about nanotech and you had to try to persuade people and maybe they didn't buy it. Maybe you were too early. Now, Given your reputations, you probably call somebody and say, I'm interested in this company. And they're like, great, where do I send the check? How do you make sure that you're not getting over your skis? Whose counsel do you seek? 
<laughs> it's a, that's a great question. I'm going to pause for a second because the short answer may not be what you expect. I don't seek anyone's counsel. Now, that's the short answer, and I hesitated because that doesn't sound like the right answer, but it is the truthful answer. Mm-hmm. But what I do instead is I try to learn from my arc of mistakes and successes. So, for example, nanotech investing in 2002 to 2006-ish. You're definitely right. I was evangelizing hard. I was shifting from dot-com investing, which had done so well for us in the 90s, MT 2000, the shift to, quote, something completely different, as opposite from dot-com investing as I could possibly fathom, hearkening back to my deep tech roots and my PhD work that I started but did not finish, as well as some other chip design work I did at HP. I had all these other veins of prior experience to try to just build an entire new investment thesis around. It's funny, I actually ended up evangelizing my partners at work more than anyone else, such that they led more nanotech deals than I did. That's a little detail not too many people (laughs) know from the outside. I did like four or five investments total, maybe even less. I think it was about four or five. Most of them were in a field called molecular electronics, basically building memory chips. And one of those companies went public. One got acquired by Dell. That actually was led by my partner, Warren, though. One almost made it, but went belly up. And one is still going private and is in an M&A conversation as we speak. So it just took 10 years to 15 years longer than it should have. So across the board, big mistake on market timing. You reinvent something fundamental down at the molecular scale. It takes a long time before you can vertically integrate to something people really care about and impact an industry. I thought... The semiconductor path was a fast path to that. I then subsequently thought synthetic biology is a lot more interesting. And it's really a credit to nanotechnology and what I started to call bio-nano for no particular reason that I got into all the field of synthetic biology work that then led to synthetic meat, Memphis meats, and things that frankly are a lot more interesting today than the path that got me there. So perhaps embedded in the question, the sense of responsibility that if it's too easy to get people excited, do I take responsibility for being more thoughtful about not overstating it. I think I do for different reasons. I think it rings a little hollow if you're a constant shill for everything and you just are full of hyperbole and over-exaggerate everything. And, and I can be prone to that, right? So that's something I try to watch just to be balanced in my communications. I just get super excited about these things, all these companies. And uh, I think it's also the case that I don't quite have the influence you might imply in that question. Later stage investors, they have a steely eye and they look at these opportunities much in the same way. I will say there may be a few occasions that seem that, that they play the fast follower, like they'd want to invest in anything we do. And some of these names that do that actually might surprise you, but that actually lowers our estimation in a way. And that if that's all it took to get them excited. It just feels like a very sheep-like behavior, Mm. frankly. I mean, we welcome it, I suppose, but we also don't respect it particularly much. And and I don't think there's nearly as much of that as you might suspect. We try to get good, high-quality investors for our companies at every stage. And so we tend not to want to go to the ones that are just trying to chase the latest theme. Because by by the way, those kinds of investors tend to be fickle. When times get tough, the conviction may have shifted to some other bright, shiny object if they didn't really have their own internal compass for why they were investing in what they are investing in. Speaking of boring company and Neuralink, I'd seen talk of creating a holding company above Tesla. And The Verge had a really interesting story about how that could happen. Elon Musk take Tesla private. Would these companies be pulled along into a publicly held company? Just wondering what you both think of that idea. Well, it's probably best that we didn't comment, but let me just say Elon did reply publicly saying that taking Tesla private now is not really 
very plausible, right? <laughs> and the, the valuation has made that less of a possibility than when he first suggested it. But stepping back, it's not so essential to have all these businesses under one roof, right? Come at it from a slightly different angle. There's been logic discussed and the time frame is for the future for eventually spinning out Starlink from SpaceX, going the opposite direction. Because there are good reasons why businesses are distinct, why holding companies like ITT or General Electric or others that just try to roll a whole bunch of different business units under one big managerial level generally have failed. And I think the argument here is that there's tight synergies between these business units. And I, at least for one, would throw out Neuralink is not obviously necessary to any of the 10-year business plan horizons of the others, mm-hmm. right? I think we're dig the tunnels just fine without Neuralink. I think the space businesses and such uh, don't require that either. I'm not, not implying there's any other synergies, but I'm just like, that one, nah, it's not so obvious. Why, why would you throw that one in the mix? This is also somewhat of a random question, but given how experienced both of you are with synthetic biology and with robotics and with advanced complex systems, I'm just wondering what you think about the coronavirus problem that we're facing right now and what solutions that you think about, what frustrates you about what's going on in our response and Are there areas that you see where you could make a direct impact or where our government could reorient to make sure it delivers the vaccine in a more efficient way? Well, for one, I'll I'll start on a positive note because I, I think we're all just emotionally tired of how difficult of a time it's been collectively for humanity for the last year and change. I think that one positive aspect to consider is that a global pandemic in this time of information and fast connectivity has probably seen some of the greatest collaboration across diverse scientific fields and across medical researchers and bodies internationally than we've probably ever seen. And I think to that, we can attribute a lot of the success in terms of early rapid understanding of the virus, of its actions. It's still an evolving field. And I I think people just really underestimate just how complicated immunology can be. But I I think that we we really just need to commend our scientific community for, for assessing the situation and saying that they can't continue to operate in small individual bubbles that are working to outpublish someone else. And rather, we need a collective communal effort. To that extent, I think one area where we've failed in the US, particularly drastically, is in rapid, accessible, and economically viable testing for the population To that effect, we actually invested in a robotics company called Opentrons based in New York, which is just making some exceptional progress in terms of being able to very rapidly turn around COVID tests for the population in New York at a price that's significantly cheaper than what any of the existing systems offer. And I think that that has to be the first step in terms of managing this on a population level scale. So I think that while I certainly am not of the opinion that venture capital is some silver bullet to all of the world's myriad of problems, I think that we as investors can be particularly mindful and consider what are the ways in which this profession we have is a tool for good and is a tool for enabling solutions to come to market that are desperately needed. I don't think $150 to $250 private mail-in tests are a scalable solution for the majority of the population, and we need to make it just much, much more accessible, which Opentrons is doing. Aside from price, which is very interesting and important, as you mentioned, just wondering how this differs from the other at-home testing companies. This is not, from a technological standpoint, a 
any different. It's a PCR-based test. Today, it's almost mind-numbing when you look at how these samples are collected and processed. Every saliva sample has to be like individually scanned, labeled, and probably some actual individual is sitting somewhere entering these into a database as they're coming through a mail-in facility. OpenTrans has figured out that the correct solution is actually to build a centralized, fully automated lab through which the samples coming in, I, I believe they're largely coming in through through hospital systems, are dealt with in a fully automated fashion, which both accelerates the process by which it's working, but also improves not just the speed, but the total accuracy of the outcome. Not to say that the PCR test is any more accurate, it's the same PCR test, but that there there isn't some weird name swap or a drop digit in a serial number transcription because the entire process is automated end to end. Imagine you're processing hundreds of thousands, going to millions of these samples. Each is on a little sample container with a barcode on the side that a human unpacks, unloads, orients to a barcode reader, double checks the number, puts it in, makes sure they put them in the right place at that point for some automated handling versus a 2D barcode at the bottom. So the entire tray of samples in one photographic swoop has been identified and the location is not been messed with, no human in the loop. And from that point onward, if you imagine that just as an example, the entire workflow dramatically shortens from days to hours and price-wise at least 4X, the cost of doing the things that Quest and LabCorp and everyone else are doing so poorly today. So that in aggregate, let's just say revenue growths of hundreds of millions of dollars month over month is, is what the company's looking at. Are its tests widely accessible? Oh yeah. They are in New York and they work increasingly with more hospitals. And the idea is meet the COVID crush, right? And then they'll realize, and they're already having these conversations, wow, my regular HIV testing and my blood work, and I was like, I do more of this, right? So that's one. We have another one, by the way, called Prelis Biosystems, which is building artificial human lymph nodes. The founding vision of the company was to have a very high throughput optical 3D printer to print kidneys, liver tissue for replacement skin, basically organ replacements from human cells. And that's great. And they're working on that and they have some good progress, but they realize that one of the smallest organs that's efficacious and useful is the lymph node, those little bumps on your neck. And they do serve a function. They're not just random pus bags that are just sitting there. They have a membrane and the B to T cell lymphocyte amplification cycle occurs within those lymph nodes in a very interesting way that is a much better way basically to make antibodies. So rather than using humans as the antibody manufacturing machine, they print armies of human lymph nodes. Think of it as a externalized immune system. And the aha is you don't need any sick patients to get started on this. So the moment anyone had coronavirus, the actual viral material, they don't have to wait till a human gets to the point of recovery, which takes a while and has a good antibody response, which also took a while. You just get any virus. They've done this with Zika virus. They've done it with flu. They've done it with coronavirus, including new mutants to coronavirus. Anything new that pops up, just send them the virus, they'll generate the antibodies. And they've shown that they're as good or better than what's already out there. And they do it all within 30 days. Steve, I mentioned this podcast that you did this summer. And I was astonished to hear you say that you have never sold a share in any company you hold. Can you elaborate on that? Because I'm assuming that you meant private stakes, maybe that you've acquired alongside your funds. No, no. So I meant anything I've invested in as a venture capitalist. So throughout the DFJ days, now, gosh, we're almost 35 years in, and certainly for future ventures, it is remarkably goal aligning to an entrepreneur to look him in the eye and say, I will never 
sell a single share of your company. Now, sometimes I don't have a choice. Companies get acquired for cash like Skype did back in the day. I can't stop that. But as long as they go public or they get acquired by a public company, then I don't sell the shares to make it sound a little less insane than it might otherwise. <laughs> donate it to charity over time. And I haven't been able to donate it fast enough. So I still sitting on all my Tesla shares and, and what have you. And I would never sell any of them. It's a <laughs> remarkably simplifying leap to make. It removes a huge amount of anxiety about trying to time the market. It shifts my thinking at the front end to being much more of a long-term investor, right? Like an arbitrage-seeking opportunist would be like, well, sure, I'll invest in a gaming company or a consumer electronics company that I know I'm going to have to sell because there's no way that's going to be worth a lot of money over decades, right? It's all a question of M&A timing and punching out. Well, I don't want to invest in a company where I have to think about market timing of punching out. I want to think about something where like 20 years from now, this company is amazing. 50 years from now, it's even more amazing. And so it helps on the front end filter as well to be a long-term investor. So even after 15 years, you don't return the position to the LP? Oh, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me be more precise. We, we distribute our shares to the LPs like a normal venture firm would along the way and, and so forth. But then when I get my personal stake in that, just right, me. Right. Stake, Your advisor shares or whatever the case yeah, is. Or my, carried, or my carried interest, most of all. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so think back to like DFJ days. Throughout my entire career at DFJ, there has been all kinds of companies that have gone public and they still are. And I get those shares for the carried interest portion. I keep those personally. I don't sell them. Got it. Mary and I know staying put in California. Are you, Steve, thinking about moving? Hell no. So there's all kinds <laughs> of telegram groups that have been on this post-COVID planning about all. Sadly, many of my friends have punched out and gone to Texas or Florida. I berate them. Here's my short version. If you've become wealthy enough as an investor or an entrepreneur such that you could choose to live anywhere you want in your life, why in the world would you pick up and go to some godforsaken place now, right? Just for tax avoidance? What? Oh, just capital Godforsaken meaning Texas? Yes. <laughs> I did 12 years in Texas, my high school years and earlier. So your ages six to 18 were in Texas. And I've been back a total of five days since. And I can start to have a twang about that. And my God, don't get me started. But why would you want to live in a hellhole when you live in paradise? Just to avoid capital gains tax? Like really, how about, for example, donate to charity instead and avoid that capital gains tax? So there is a different way to look at the world rather than just trying to do wealth transfer and preservation across generations. It just feels so short-sighted to me. What a sacrifice to move to less than an exciting place, let's just say, if you happen to be blessed to live in an exciting place. Well, we really appreciate that after hearing from so many people who are boasting about bailing on this place. Also, we kind of are curious to see how many people are going to come back after they're maybe bored out of their minds in a year or two. The other question I wanted to ask you, Steve and Mariana, quickly is SPACs. So you've done this SPV for SpaceX. Is SPAC something that you're thinking about? I just saw today Lucid Motors is apparently either linking up with a blank check company or thinking about it. Faraday Future, same thing. Obviously, a lot of car companies especially seem to be going down this road. Just curious what you make of them and if you could see using one at some point. Oh, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so clear. <laughs> I mean, across the space and electric vehicle category, which are some of the largest ones, it would be really refreshing if a decent company was included in the mix. They're just a rogues gallery of horrific companies. It's mind-boggling. It's as if the Masayoshi Sun Vision Fund, writ large, 100x over, was just throwing bags of money at companies willy-nilly 
And in many cases, not all, but in many cases, these are companies that are unable to raise a penny from any other source, starting with Virgin Galactic getting turned down by the Saudis. If you're putting Saudi Arabia as your funding source, you are at the lowest rung of possible investors already. They have that sale. It's just mind-boggling to me. I don't understand it. I mean, we know a number of these companies from the private markets. They are not great companies. Nicola in particular and others are, let's just say, without, I won't mention more names. But let me just say a lot of other ones. Don't mention yeah. more names. No, no, no. I know. I'm not going to mention more names. But like, I'm, I'm saying just the, the hard tech ones, the battery ones, the car ones, the rocket related ones. Some of them are good companies. Don't get me wrong. They're not all fraudulent. Only a small number of them are openly that way. It's that they're early stage venture companies and they don't need to meet the forecasting requirements that the SEC normally would require in IPOs. So they specifically are looking for companies that don't have any operating numbers to show and they can make any forecast they want. They're like, oh, the numbers are going to be huge five years from now. And that's the whole racket. We're not saying that every SPAC company is a terrible company. I think what we're saying is that everyone should be very wary of these companies because of Steve's point that they're early stage companies, that the SPAC is solely a fundraising system. And I think that's a really frightening perspective because I believe that public market investors expect a particular level of maturity and progress and meaningful forecasting from the companies that are on the public markets. And that's just not going to be true of the vast majority of these companies that have gone through SPACs. It could have a potentially terrible blowback on the entire tech industry. Well, I did wonder, you mentioned Virgin Galactic. I mean, that performed so well. I mean, that kicked everything off. Great example. It's held in really well, but has not generated any business, right? There's been no positive business development for the company. They announced that they're going to develop a hypersonic plane, but that has zero synergy with their current business they're trying to launch, which is the suborbital flights, which have yet to happen for customers. So again, it's all a bet on the come. It's a bet on a product they haven't started building, this hypersonic flight which has absolutely nothing to do with their current business. There's zero synergy. There's not even a motor or a component of similarity. And then they've got the core business that they're trying to get started that just isn't happening. I'm keeping up on why that's not happened yet. Guys, I really didn't mean to take up quite so much of your time, but I so appreciate it. Thank you Thank both you. so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of Strictly VC Download. We hope you come back and listen again. And now I will give it to my co-partner, Mr. Podcaster, Teddy Gove. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.